0: Fans and Dino lovers, welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew.
1: And we are back. Tim, how's it going? I'm good, Andrew. How are you doing? I am super great because we have a lot to cover today. Or should I say uncover today? Do you see where I'm getting at with this? I do. Let's let's just dive right in. Okay, okay. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Emily Lindsay, Associate Curator and Excavation Site Director at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum, and Adjunct Faculty at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. Her research uses information from past and modern ecosystems to understand how ice age animals and environments functioned, how climate change and human actions intersect to drive extinctions and to predict future ecological response in the face of modern global changes. She also collaborates cross-disciplinary to develop strategies for integrating deep and near-time perspectives on global change into land management practices, environmental law and policy frameworks, and conservation science. Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. So right off the bat, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into paleontology?
0: Sure. So, you know, I had a pretty circuitous route to paleontology. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and um, I was in a family that loved to camp and hike. And in high school, I got into mountain climbing and rock climbing. And I thought, you know, how cool would it be to have a job where I got to travel the world and work outside? Mm -hmm. Um, But I I didn't really know... What that was going to look like, you know, I always, I always loved animals and nature and the outdoors, but I was also always fascinated by the past, and I, uh, starting in high school, would um, sneak off and work on archaeological digs sometimes. Ooh. And I actually ended up taking a lot of archaeology classes in in college, uh, so many so that a lot of my friends thought I was majoring in archaeology. But I never really wanted to be an archaeologist because I thought that, you know, culture is so complicated and you can never really yeah. know anything. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, yeah. And then I, uh, I got into uh, ecology. And I just sort of fell in love with that topic and the systems thinking of it, sort of trying to figure out, okay, so you have a whole system. And then if you change one component of that ecosystem, Mm -hmm, how does that mm -hmm. affect everything else? Uh, You know, uh, if you add a species or remove a species or change something about the environment, like how does that kind of propagate all the way across all the elements of that system? And that was fascinating. And I actually... um, ended up becoming a marine ecologist for a number of years, and I got scuba certified, and I spent a lot of time, um, you know, studying crabs and uh, mussels and things that live on the bottom of the ocean. I actually traveled to Antarctica and worked on a research vessel there, uh, studying krill, and I had a lot of great adventures. But there was something about it where I felt that, it just felt like people were kind of asking the same sorts of questions and the same sorts of ecosystems. And I, I wanted to do something a little bit more interdisciplinary. And my friends had always told me, Well, you like animals and you like dead things. Like, why not paleontology? And I <laughs> yeah. thought, you know, that's just it's just people describing new species of dinosaurs. It mm-hmm. just doesn't interesting to me. But then I was working on an archaeological dig and we had a cave and it was full of uh, human skeletons, very old, you know, some of the oldest human skeletons that had been discovered in that area. And there were also fossils of now extinct animals like giant ground sloths in the cave. And that experience sort of introduced me to this idea that you could ask ecosystem level questions, like ecological questions in ecosystems that didn't exist anymore. And that just blew my mind. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, and so that's that's when I went to grad school. So it was, you know, five years after I'd, I'd graduated from college, I went back to grad school and I got my PhD and ended up as part of uh, my graduate work excavating a site on the Ecuadorian coast that was actually a tar pit and I didn't know until some friends of mine showed me the site that there were tar pits other than the La Brea tar pits and so that was another kind of mind-blowing experience but uh, after three years of excavations I knew a lot about tar pits and then um this job came up at at Rancho La Brea and it was just a really good fit. So here I am.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I like that you pointed that out because I think a lot of people think paleontology is just, you know, you dig up bones and, and that's the end of it. But it's, as you mentioned, very interdisciplinary. You know, a lot of people studying modern systems in order to understand how the past may have worked or how it affected the environment. And it gets pretty complicated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, um, a lot more to it than just, you know, digging things up and saying mm-hmm. what they were, right? Like, cause I mean, that's, that's interesting, but what you really want to know is what was, what was it like in the past and how does that relate to kind of what we see in the world today? And so I, uh, I think paleontology has actually a lot of information to reveal about things that we're going through today that we maybe don't recognize because we're seeing just such a short time slice of
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the La Brea Tar Pits. Could you describe uh, that area and your role in directing the excavation site? Because I think a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with what exactly it is.
0: Sure. So the La Brea Tar Pits um, is actually one of the most important fossil sites in the world. And The reason for that is that there's these uh, underground oil reserves, and because of all the earthquake activity we have in California, there's this one part of the city where there are these little cracks in the ground, and that oil gets sort of smushed up to the surface and forms these shallow pools. And when kind of the lighter parts of that oil, the gasoline and kerosene and stuff evaporate into the air. What's left is this very, very sticky substance called asphalt or what people colloquially call tar. And it's so sticky that just just a few inches of asphalt is sticky enough to trap something as big as, you know, a mammoth. And so over the last 50,000 years... Uh, different animals have sort of accidentally wandered into these seeps. Often they're disguised with dust or a thin layer of water on top, and so you don't recognize what they are. And so all of these different animals, everything from, you know, little songbirds and lizards and rodents all the way up to saber-toothed cats and mammoths have gotten stuck in these seeps. And their bones have been preserved, again, by this sort of remarkable nature of the asphalt. And not only animals, but also plants, tons and tons of plants, uh, everything from like little seeds and acorn caps and leaves all the way up to entire tree trunks. And so what the La Brea Tar-pets has managed to do is capture basically an entire ecosystem across the last 50,000 years of Earth's history. And so the opportunity there for paleontologists like me is that it's it's one of the only places in the world where you can actually ask the sorts of questions an ecologist, a modern ecologist asks in an ancient ecosystem because you actually have all of the components of the ecosystem there. Mm -hmm. Now, sort of the opportunity and the challenge of Labrea tarpidz is that it also just happens to be in the middle of the second biggest city in the United right. States. So um, it's it's a great opportunity because it means it was discovered a long time ago. We are able to excavate it year round. So most paleontologists, they'll go out for maybe a month in the summer somewhere in some remote area of maybe, you know, Montana or Utah, somewhere that's hard to get to. Uh, They live in tents for a month and then they bring back all their fossils and spend the rest of the year studying them. Because we're in the middle of Los Angeles and it never really snows and the people who work at the site live right there in the city we can excavate it year round so we've been excavating off and on for the last hundred years we currently excavate about 361 days a year and because of that we've built up a collection of about 5 million specimens that everything again from like juniper berries to lizards to giant ground sloths and we're able to study them and we have visitors from all over the world coming to work in our collections
1: well you know i i went to la brea several years ago and i was i remember i was kind of weirded out because walking up there there was just like an orange traffic cone and then i kept seeing a couple other ones all over the place and the ground was just bubbling next to them and i was like is this okay is that normal but you know that's that's just what it's like there i guess right
0: yeah, you know, I mean the same processes that were operating 50,000 years ago are still operating today in our park and and you can't really control it and it's 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 uh, a little bit. Um, it's challenging, but it's also it's also kind of this great reminder of, you know, nature is all around us and it's kind of going to do what it's going to do. So there are actually like sections of our parking lot that are now blocked off because a, a tar pit has opened up there. And so right. we've just had to like wall it off and, you know, not let anyone park there because mm-hmm. it's it's all it's all asphalt now.
1: Yeah. You know, when I went there, you were just talking about how many fossils you have. That was like the first thing that that struck me. I got a little bit of a behind the scenes tour. Um, you know, seemingly more and more are being unearthed, you know, to this day, like you mentioned, 361 days per year that you do excavations. But going into those collections, it was just like, you know, as far as the eye could see shelves with fossils and fossils and fossils. How do you deal with a collection of that size? I figure eventually you're going to run out of room, right?
0: Yes. um, (laughs) That is, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have. Um, You know, and we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily choose to keep excavating at this point and unearthing new specimens. The problem is because again it's it's a it's a big growing city and we're right in the middle of the city. All around us there are construction projects happening all the time. They're, you know, building a subway station across the street and the art museum next door is expanding and an apartment building just went up across the other street. And so all these other entities are digging right in our area and so they're constantly finding new asphaltic fossil deposits new tar pits and then um we obviously want to make sure the fossils are preserved all the important data about them like where they were found and how they were oriented and what condition they were in is preserved and so you know we have this mandate to you know permanently curate these vast fossil collections but you're right we are absolutely out of uh out of space and in in fact the entire perimeter of our museum the part you went in is like the best curated part of the collection but Mm. there we just we have fossils everywhere we have two full-time collections managers and an assistant collections manager and Uh, You know, they spend just a lot of time kind of playing this giant game of Tetris and figuring out where (laughs) where we're going to put the next the next batch of fossils. We're actually in um, master planning now uh, for a major museum renovation and expansion that's going to about triple our collection space. So that's really exciting. Um, And that will allow us especially to curate parts of the collection that aren't very accessible right now, but have actually come to be understood to be extremely important for scientific research. So of course, You know, a hundred years ago, what everybody was really excited about was the saber-toothed cats and the direwolves and the mammoths and the camels, right? And so they were really focused on these big animals. But the really remarkable thing about the tarpets, again, is that it has this whole ecosystem preserved. We have insects, like like wings and legs of insects, and we have tiny little snail and clamshells, and we have all of these, like snakes and lizards, and more than 130 species of birds and it's studying these fossils that is really going to tell us about what the uh, what the environment was like and how it changed as we went through this last major period of global warming coming out of the ice age into the Holocene. And so, it's really important that we curate these specimens and make them accessible for research. And that's a big part of why we need more space is so, uh, so people can actually conduct research on these because we, we just don't have the space to sort of properly curate them in a, in a research appropriate way right now.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, all that being said, I know you said you literally have millions of options to choose from. Do you have a personal favorite discovery?
0: Well, my favorite species that we have at the tar pits is the giant ground sloth. Um, we actually have three species of ground sloth, but the main one we have is paramylodon harlani. So these are sloths that were the size of hippopotamuses, and they had armor embedded in their skin and giant claws. And they're my favorite because... You know, of all the kind of big extinct animals we have, most of them, there's something living somewhere in the world today, usually in Africa, that, that is similar mm. or related, right? Like we still have elephants, which are pretty closely related to mammoths. We still have big cats and big dogs. We still have, you know, camels and wild horses. There is nothing in the world that is even kind of like a giant ground sloth. They're just this very weird uh, lineage Um and and sort of ecotype that's completely gone from earth. And so those those are my favorite uh in terms of you know the species that we've found. Um in terms of discoveries, you know, we're making a lot of discoveries now that were not just focused on the on the megafauna, the big animals uh that are really connecting the past, you know, the deeper time, you know, tens of thousands of year history of the Los Angeles Basin with the urban nature that we have even in the midst of this mega city today. So we're finding, you know, in recent years, we found a mountain lion, we found a raccoon, we found a badger and weasels and foxes. And so I think understanding the continuum of You know, so not just not just the story of extinction, but the stories of resilience and survival that we're uncovering in some of these species is really cool and inspiring.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when it it comes to these environmental global changes, so there's always a debate as to how much humans are contributing. Right. So you see this pop up not only for modern climate change issues, but also when dealing with the fossil record. So, for example, uh, Michigan, we're famous for our mammal fossils from the last ice age, so most famously the now extinct Mastodon. But, you know, there, there remains ongoing discussions and debates as to whether it was climate change versus overhunting by humans or most likely some combination of both of those that led to the Mastodon and other animals from this time going extinct. So... Doing what you do and what you've just described, you also work at this interplay. So how do you determine the extent to which humans might be involved in global changes like this? And how do you go about communicating that to your audience?
0: That's a great question. So I think, um, you know, from my perspective, one of the key things is to look, be looking at the right scale. So... I think a lot of paleontologists take this very zoomed out view and they'll look at like an entire continent or an entire hemisphere. And they'll say, well, you know, humans arrived at this time and then the animals went extinct at this time. And therefore, you know, humans definitely caused the extinction. And then other people will look at maybe a single site um, and they'll say, well, you know, we have animals here, the, the large animals, and then they disappear and there's no evidence of humans here. And there is evidence of climate change. So therefore, you know, climate change caused the extinction and humans didn't have anything to do with it. And I think that the real key is, is you need to find the appropriate scale. And I think that's really a regional scale because that a regional scale is the area on which climate and environmental changes are going to be operating. And so that really gives you an opportunity to kind of look at, okay, what's, what's happening in this ecosystem, right? Because the ecosystem in Southern California is really different from the ecosystem in Michigan, right? Right, And so it is very probable that the degree to which climate change versus human impacts were important in the extinction could be very different in Mm -hmm. those two regions. So, That's, you know, so step one is kind of identify what is, what is this, the geographic scale you're looking at? I think step two is figure out what was going on, is figure out what, um, when did different species disappear from that region. And that can be very challenging when you don't have, you know, literally thousands of dire wolves or saber-toothed cats like we do at the Liberation. But you do have, as you mentioned, a lot of mastodons Mm -hmm. in Michigan. So that's one place to start is like figure out when did the mastodons go extinct, get enough good radiocarbon dates on them and figure out exactly when they went extinct. And then start to line that up with what kind of ecosystem change was going on in the Great Lakes region at the time that they went extinct? And what is the archaeological record from that time period? And then, as you mentioned before, you look to sort of the modern landscape and you say, okay, in in a similar type of environment, how are these two factors interplaying today? Because we are going through, again, very rapid climate warming and in many parts of the world, increasing human population and increasing sort of habitat modification and human impacts. And so you can then look and say, okay, well, we know that in the context of ongoing climate change, uh, these are sort of the interacting factors between environmental change and human activities and how they're impacting large mammal species today and sort of play that back into the past and, uh, you know, look for analogies. So I think, you know, it's always hard uh, because we don't have a time machine and we don't have, you know, video recordings from 13,000 years ago. So it's hard to to look, uh, hard to know for certain, but that's you know, I think we can get much better resolution of the fossil record and um, through kind of intensive radiocarbon dating efforts. And then um, we can use that in combination with data from modern ecosystems to start to make predictions about what might have happened in the past.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for that answer, because, you know, I think it's important to illustrate that this stuff is complicated, you know, and there's not really a one size fits all for a lot of the science stuff. So thank you for sharing your insight on that. So you shared your background before it's very clearly, you know, not only impressive, but you have a experience in a lot of different areas. So do you have any advice for inspiring paleontologists, you know, is a similar path to what you took, what you would recommend for somebody who wants to get into the field?
0: I would say follow your curiosity and your passion because this is a field that requires a lot of hard work, but is really rewarding and really fun. But make sure that you're following what really inspires you. And there's so many different questions to be asked in the past and so many different ways to ask them that there's, you know, I want to say something in it for everyone, but, but practically, I mean, there are people who... Are using like modern biomedical technology to look inside of bones and understand what, uh, you know, how ancient extinct animals moved. And there are people like me who look at kind of whole systems and understand the interactions between plants and animals and the environment and humans in these systems. And there are people that are using data from the past, like real actual fossil evidence to actually inform how we manage ecosystems today in the context of modern climate change. So there's a big conservation application to paleontology as well. So there's just a ton of different kind of fascinating avenues to go down with it. In terms of studies, you know, usually people come to paleontology through one of two fields, either through biology, like I did, coming from the sort of looking at modern ecosystems and and animals, or through geology, the study of Earth's history, and then seeing the place of the history of life within that bigger earth history. So those are sort of the two majors that um most people would start out in if they were going to go into paleontology eventually.
1: Yeah, that's what I did too. I have an undergraduate degree in biology and then my graduate degree is in geology. And I sort of just, you know, made my way there over time where I was studying things that were living. And then I started getting more and more interested in what happens to that. But I I really like I like that approach of, you know, use your own interests and hobbies and specialties to figure out what questions can you help answer in science. So I I really like that approach. Thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much. For being on our show today. I am really excited to, you know, follow along with what happens to the tar pits. And I, I know you've got some exciting expansions, and I will absolutely be keeping a close eye on your research as well. So congratulations on, on all your successes. And you know, it's what a cool place to work. And thank you for being on our show today.
0: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: Well, that was very interesting. Yeah, I'm always super interested about you know parts of the world that are just Totally different than what we have here, you know, preserve different fossils. And in this case, like just the idea of the ground bubbling up is, is super crazy. I would highly recommend people go out and check that out sometime if they ever get the chance. Mm-hmm. Well, until next time, Tim, I wonder what exciting fossils we'll talk about next. That's all right. Take it easy.
0: Next time on the Cranbrook Paleo podcast, we're talking to a paleontologist who finds information about dinosaurs from their poop. I hope he's wearing gloves.